Hello and welcome to Call of the Senate, a podcast presented by the Minnesota Senate DFL Caucus. I'm Luke Bishop. I'd like to start by introducing one of the newest members of the Senate DFL Caucus, Senator Lindsey Port of Burnsville. Senator Port is a nonprofit advisor and a consultant, and she represents District 56 in the Minnesota Senate. She sits on three committees, Commerce and Consumer Protection Finance and Policy, Housing Finance and Policy, and Technology and Reform Policy. Senator Port is also the ranking member of the subcommittee on Metropolitan Governance. Senator, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining. We appreciate it. So we have a lot to discuss today, uh, so let's get right into it. Senator Port, why don't you just start by sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself, why you ran for office, and, and how you arrived at this position. Sure. Um, I, you know, I started, I guess, on my path to running for office as a volunteer uh, on an issue that I cared about. I got involved in the marriage equality campaign, and uh, really that changed sort of the path of my life because I had conversations with voters for the first time, and I absolutely fell in love with it, um, realizing that we can have deep conversations where we don't always agree, um, but we can hear each other, we can move together, and it really inspired me to get involved in politics, uh, which eventually led to more uh, organizing within my own community and eventually led me here to the Senate. Well, what a fantastic campaign that marriage equality campaign was, and I think that the uh, campaign certainly took the right perspective by, uh, I think, you know, in other states, there was a push towards uh, sort of a libertarian constitutional argument, and here is all about love and uh, making sure that people understood that um, everyone should have the right to love uh, in Minnesota. So we have a number of topics I'd like for us to get to today, you know, but before we discuss anything else, I'd just like to acknowledge the news that's on everyone's mind right now. Um, on Tuesday, a verdict was reached by the jury in the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, uh, and Chauvin was found guilty on all charges and awaits sentencing. So Senator, what are your thoughts uh, on this news and how do you propose that we move forward at this point to create a more just system of law enforcement that holds police uh, accountable? Yeah, it's obviously the eyes of the world are on Minnesota right now, have been for a year um, since George Floyd was killed. And this week we get the first step, um, I think, towards real potential change. And I, I want to like emphasize that word potential. Um, this week came with, for me, what, what felt a little bit like relief um, that we did have accountability in this case. Um, but we had accountability, not justice. Um, the path to justice is still in front of us. And it's really up to us to decide if we're going to go down that path or not. Um, for me, this I am more committed than I ever have been to, to it is our job. We have to do the work to put police reform, put criminal justice reform. Um, we have to pass those things. And we also have to pass make a commitment to passing a budget um, and putting in place policies that close the disparity gaps that are all through our state in education, in housing. Um, really, this is not, this is the area where uh, it feels the most pressing because literally black men are dying at the hands of police. Um, but, but we are responsible for systemic disparities in almost every area of policy in Minnesota. And so I, I am really committed and I think that we have a DFL caucus that is really committed to making sure that we move forward on this change. Um, and frankly, 
the eyes of the world are still on us. We can show a path to real systemic change. Um, and I remain committed. I know our caucus remains committed um, and I, I'm hopeful and uh, motivated to make sure that we bring Republicans along with us in, in this journey. So one of the things that you just mentioned there was housing, which I want to prod at a little bit. And you know, housing has been an important issue for you. Um, you're on the housing committee. So you know, what have you been working on uh, through the housing committee? And, and what are some of the ideas that you know uh, related to housing that you'd like to see the Senate uh, take action on? Yeah, I. I had never worked in housing before. I was put on the housing committee and I have absolutely fallen in love with this topic. Um, I think there is, there's so much that stems from, do you have a stable home? Um, you know, can you get a job? Can you get addiction and recovery treatment? Kids, kids can't perform in school if they don't have stable homes. So, so much of it starts with housing, with having affordable, stable housing all across Minnesota. And this is not an issue that only affects the Metro. This is a huge issue in greater Minnesota as well, particularly as businesses are trying to expand into greater Minnesota. Um, there's, there's no housing for workers right. to come there. Um, so this is, this is a big problem. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it's also one of our biggest disparity gaps, only like 25% um, of black Minnesotans own their own home. Um, and that's, that's upwards of 60% among um, white Minnesotans. And so that gap is huge and it transfers from generation to generation and really slows down progress. Um, I think there are so many things that we can do in housing um, that, that really, they're right there in front of us. People know how to solve this problem. There are nonprofits, there are developers, there are cities, counties who are ready to work on this problem, who are doing all that they can. And the thing that has stuck with me most through this session, through everything I've learned on the housing committee was something we heard from the commissioner the very first week she presented to us in that committee. Um, she was asked, what's, what's the one thing that we can do to, to give you the tools you need to help solve this problem? And her answer was more. We have programs in place that do the things we need them to do. They just simply don't do enough. They can't do enough because we don't invest enough money. Um, two out of three qualified programs uh, to build multifamily housing units, to build housing in greater Minnesota, um, two out of three programs that qualify for state funding for affordable housing do not get built because we don't invest enough money. I think it's, it seems like such a, a thing that like we must spend a ton of money on. We spend one third of 1% of the budget in Minnesota. That's like wild to me. One third of 1% is what we are spending to make sure that Minnesotans have stable housing. And this is an investment that we can make that really lifts up every other investment we're making. Um, so for me, this is a big push to really, we have to do more. And then the other thing I just want to mention in housing um, that we've been working on, I've been working really closely with the chair, um, Chair Dreheim, on is this eviction moratorium phase out. Um, you know, we've had an eviction moratorium for the last year through this pandemic. It's been vital for us keeping the pandemic under control and keep, keeping people in housing during the pandemic. It is at some point going to come to an end. And it would be really catastrophic to have that be a cliff just as we are 
beginning to get money into the state, almost $500 million in the state for rental housing assistance. Um, which leads me, if you are behind in your rent, please go to renthelpmn.org. Uh, it's where you can apply for rental assistance. There is hundreds of millions of dollars coming into Minnesota. We want to keep people into their in their homes apply, please, we can help keep you there. Um, the federal government really stepped up, but we need to make sure that people are not evicted while they are in the process of applying for that money. And so this phase out is just a vital piece of legis legislation. We have bipartisan support for it. It's also moving through the house. It feels like a bright spot in what is yeah. a legislature that feels very far away from each other sometimes. Um, this does feel like a thing that we can do and can work together on. So I'm really hopeful over the next few weeks that we will put those protections in place to make sure that people have the time they need to get that money because giving giving out $500 million to people, to the right people, to the folks who need it does take time. And so we need to make sure that that phase out is in place um, before the moratorium ends. Well, you're absolutely right. And your work on this has been so important to make sure that there's an off ramp for those people uh, who have been facing um, eviction or might be behind on rent uh, to make sure that they don't get kicked out of their homes. And you're right that it seems like uh, this has been maybe one of those really few bright spots that are few and far between where there's been bipartisan agreement. Absolutely. Um, so Another issue that's been important to you, you know, you're the chief author of Senate File 422, the Democracy for the People Act, and this is a wide-ranging bill related to elections, voter registration, uh, absentee voting, uh, early voting, campaign finance, so much more. So why is this issue important to you, and how do you think that this bill would improve some of the issues within uh, our campaign finance and election systems? Absolutely. You know, democracy is at the core of our country. Um, and I think sometimes people think we have democracy. It's just there. It's going to stay there. It's, we don't need to work on it. But that's not actually true. There are, there are always pressures against it. And we need to do the same work that we do in all other areas to make sure that we're continuing to strengthen and preserve our democracy. And we really saw, you know, over the last several years and culminating in um, the big lie about whether the election in 2020 was fair or not. Um, and then really the violence at the United States Capitol by insurrectionists on January 6th showed us that, that it is not safe. Uh, there, that we need to do the work to make sure that we are preserving and protecting our democracy. And really, if you look back at our democracy over the past decades, it has shifted from having a focus on the people, the voters, to having protections for big corporations, for the very wealthy who wanna donate huge sums of money and to protecting, frankly, legislators who are already in office and keeping them in power, limiting new voices. And that, that's really not how democracy is supposed to work. And so this bill focuses on putting democracy back in the hands of people. Some of the key provisions are, are disclosure for campaign finance, especially on that sort of dark money side. Uh, candidates have to report everyone who gives us money, um, but, but uh, PACs and super PACs do not have those same reporting restrictions. And it's really nearly impossible for voters to understand 
who is speaking to them when we see all of these commercials and social media and uh, you know the, the hundreds of lit pieces that we all get in our mailboxes around election time. So that's a big piece of it. Uh, making sure that voters can understand who's speaking to them is, is a part of it. But also automatic voter registration. Um, when you get when you move to the state and you get in your, your driver's license, you should be automatically registered to vote. You should be able to check a box that says, yes, register me to vote. And it just does it. Um, we collect the information that's required to do that in a bunch of different places, including medical assistance, um, you know, rent help, things like that. And there are places that we can automatically register folks to vote. Um, so that's another one. And, and one other I, I wanna touch on, it's a huge bill. So there's like a lot of stuff yeah. in there, but um, one other thing I wanna touch on that really became a focus in this last election was um, a provision against anti-voter intimidation. Um, we saw this all across the state. This is not a, a thing that is just happening in the Metro and communities of color, though it is more prevalent there. Um, this is also happening in greater Minnesota. Um, and making sure that people have the freedom to cast their vote in the manner that they choose without the fear of intimidation is really at the core of who we are as a country. It should be at the core. And so this, this legislation is really about putting those principles, those values into our laws and making sure that our democracy is working for the people, um, not for powerful interests that wanna hold on to power. Right. And, you know, Minnesotan, we're lucky. We, we live in a state where Minnesotans have uh, high trust in public institutions. We have high voter turnout. We have high census completion rates. Uh, and it's important that we continue to do things like this uh, to protect that and to make sure that that uh, tradition continues for future generations. Um, we'll, we've got a little bit more time here. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, sort of some sort of broader political themes that are happening right now in uh, in the suburbs in the, of the greater metropolitan Twin Cities area. So you're a progressive from what many might call a purple district. And on the campaign trail, you earned endorsements from just about everyone from President Obama to the local unions and a vast array of progressive advocacy groups in between. Um, and so what are the shifting patterns within your district that helped usher you into office? And, and how do you view the changing political landscape in the Twin Cities metro area as DFL candidates have begun to flip suburban seats on a, on a fairly large scale in the last uh, two to four years? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really great point. It's sort of a phenomenon that's happening all across the country. Um, but really, for me and for my community, it was about engagement of the whole community. I think a lot of years previously, there had been engagement of, frankly, the, the very white um, suburban areas that um, always come out and vote. We know how they're going to vote. We can put them in neat little boxes. Um, you know, talking about Republicans versus Democrats, talking about property tax rates. Um, and when I, as I got out into my community more over the last decade, that's not what people are thinking about at the kitchen table. They're worried about how they're going to pay their rent. They're worried about stable housing and the housing market. They're worried about racial justice and social justice. They're worried about how to have tough conversations with their kids and their neighbors. And these things are, they hear politicians talking about like a, this percent tax rate instead of this percent tax rate. And they're like, what are you even talking about? That is not what we're worried about. We're worried about how we're gonna put food on our table, go to a job with dignity 
and come home and keep our families safe in, in, a, in our home. And so like actually talking to families and engaging the entire community shifted, really shifted, I think, where our community is. Um, and frankly, the suburbs aren't, we don't want incremental change. Like we're looking around and realizing there are big things broken in our system and we have to fix them. We have to step up and fix them. And I think there has been sort of this, this shift to, um, even if it doesn't feel like it affects us, it's still our job to get involved and do it. And the other thing I'll say is my district has um, changed wildly uh, demographically over the last decade. It was a very white suburb um, 10 years ago. And now we have a growing Somali population. We have an amazing Hmong population. We have Hispanic immigrants. Um, there's just, it is becoming much more culturally mixed. And that brings new ideas and new excitement and new engagement in a way that just didn't exist in our community a decade ago. So I'm, I'm really excited by the level of engagement and commitment to real change that is happening I don't think just in my district, um, I think throughout the suburbs. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a thriving, you know, there are thriving communities of color in your district and, and mm -hmm. throughout the suburbs that you mentioned. And I think that you're absolutely right that by taking the time to listen to their needs and um, by, uh, by putting in the grassroots work, uh, that that's how we flip these suburban districts. Absolutely. Um, well, Senator Port, thanks again for joining the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I look forward to seeing you again uh, on the podcast in the future. So thanks for thanks for coming on to the podcast today to, to talk about, about the issues thanks. that matter to Minnesotans. Yeah, thanks for having me, Luke. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of Call of the Senate. You can find us online at senatedfl.mn or on social media under the username senatedfl. See you again next week.